from coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Charlotte Thomason, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we're bringing you an interview about the environmentally conscious and award-winning Innovate program that is held in Edmonton's elementary and high schools. But before we get to that, stay tuned for some environmental headlines. Following the National Energy Board's hearings in Burnaby this week, River conservationist and expert witness Mark Angelo is concerned that the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion will disrupt the city's waterways. Municipal representatives argue that the Texas-based oil company is ill-equipped to deal with any damage that ecosystems may sustain due to the expansion. The city holds protected waterways, which have been cleaned up and are now witnessing an increase in biological activity, including eagles, herons, bears, bobcats, and the peregrine falcon. These protected waterways present key ecological pathways between Burnaby Mountain, Burnaby Lake, and Deer Lake, and it allows for the flow of animals, an important feature of effective conservation. Mark Angelo also says that this area is vital for fisheries, although he doesn't call for the cancellation of the expansion. Instead, he proposes an engineering of the pipeline that would be less disruptive to the ecosystems. Recently, Terra Informer Sidney Karbenik spoke with Aaron DeBlanco and James Stewart about their work founding and facilitating the award-winning Innovate program at schools here in Edmonton, Alberta. This program began when Aaron encouraged the Environmental Club to try something different, and the result has been truly innovative. Listen on to find out what these students have accomplished. I'm curious about the origins of Innovate. Erin, as the founder of the program, could you tell us how the program came to be? Going back to 2006, 2007, I took a job at Queen Elizabeth High School and uh, we had to do volunteering. So I decided to join the environmental club at lunch because uh, that was something that I was interested in doing. Um, and I walked in on the first day and I asked the students, uh, you know, what do you guys want to work on? And they said, oh, just recycling stuff, right? We're going we're gonna to get more recycling going. I was like, okay, that's awesome. But uh, what else do you want to do, right? Because recycling is something we've been doing for a long, long time, and it's fairly common. What, what could we do that would change things up a bit? And they had no ideas. The students were just, you know, not really sure. So I said, well, I, I don't know. Why don't we become the first school to have solar panels or something like that? And so the students looked at me. They're like, sure, that would be awesome. Let's do that. And then all of a sudden I realized how difficult that would be. But I would put my foot in my mouth. So that, that set us on a path to achieve that goal. And through that process, we started developing a program similar to in Innovate. Um, James and I really put Innovate together. We started with uh, with the recycling and then eventually uh, 
you know, we got the solar panels on the first high school in Edmonton, um, and that was pretty exciting. Uh, it, was, it was fairly challenging to navigate our way through, uh, through the red tape and the, and the politics of the time. But after achieving that goal, the students saw what was possible, and that just spurred a whole bunch of other types of projects. So you talk about the barriers and the red tape that you had. What was your biggest barrier? Um, I think the biggest barrier was uh, the psychology of the time. There was a lot of resistance to something like alternative energy. It just didn't make sense. Um, the collective conscious of the day was about fossil fuels and our future in Alberta remaining in that industry. And so people found it very challenging to say, well, why do you want to put solar panels on a school? And it was a very simple answer. You know, we're, um, the world's changing and we need to help students um, understand what some of these changes are, right? And how they're going to be integrated into our own society and what opportunities lie within that for their own futures. I, I think that uh, a lot of it has to do, um, uh, again, with misconceptions that Aaron was talking about, but also re-education or, or actually miseducation on the part of the powers that be, I suppose. Um, again, everything being based on, you know, we've got an oil-based economy, our technology is set. This is what our province is about. And, and challenging that also challenges people's preconceived notions about things that might kind of, uh, the technologies that might challenge that, such as solar. Um, I, I also was the first person to get solar onto a school in my district that I was working with. And uh, a, a lot of the, the red tape that I had to kind of um, break through had to do with uh, misconceptions. So it was just all, I mean, ideas like, you know, the, the, um, if there's a blackout or a brownout, the system's going to feed back onto the grid and cause um, neighboring houses, appliances to burn out or to explode. Things like that that were, you know, um, to us they might seem a little bit um, ridiculous, but to people who genuinely um, do not know and are, are kind of um, challenged by this. It, it's something that requires patience and re-education. The, the power of innovate lies in the fact that we're, we're looking to empower students um, from elementary all the way up to high school to be that voice. Um, when we put the solar panels up on the school, uh, it was very disruptive and that was the purpose, right? Because you can't, you can't incite change or get people to start the process of thinking differently about the way we do things until you disrupt what they know. Um, there's a famous quote in, in education from an author named Madeleine Grumet that said, you know, knowledge is meant to trouble the comfort and comfort the troubled. And so people like me who, you know, stay up at night and are thinking about climate change and these kinds of things for my own children and all the kids that I work with, you know, and, and imagining you know, how challenging their future is going to be. I needed to start a process. And luckily, I met James, and luckily we were able to put this into, uh, you know, some kind of format that we could integrate in, uh, in schools. So one of the projects, or another project you've worked on, is creating prosthetic hands made from 3D printers. Could you t tell us about that? 3D printing uh, came to us with one of our partners. Uh, his name's Colin Pishkani owns a company which is now in Calgary called uh, Print Your Mind 3D. Uh, he came up here, you know, it was about 2012 from Lethbridge. Uh, he was working for the Kid Wind Challenge where we make micro wind turbines 
and in the classroom and then we go to this big event and test them out and whoever has the best wind turbine wins a bunch of prizes and but the fact is that we learn from each other about wind technology and doing this and at that event a 3d printer showed up as one of the side displays and i was like what is that and colin goes yeah this is this new technology that's just come out it's it's about to revolutionize the way that we do things right like we can we can manufacture things on our kitchen table now instead of going out to the store and buying stuff which is super wasteful this is this is an opportunity to for less reliance on the industrial machine to make everything for us you know which has large environmental impacts so I was like, wow, I, I can see a ton of reasons why we should get into this. So uh, a couple of years later, um, Colin got out of Kid Win and started a 3D printing company. And we started creating what's called handathons. And uh, Colin connected to like a community foundation called Enable. And they find kids around the world who are born or who have lost their hands for various reasons. And they find people with 3D printers and they get you to 3D print prosthetic hands and so we saw this as a way to create some events and each event we printed about 20 different uh, hands, different sizes and colors. And we partnered with APEGA, the Association of Professional Engineers and, and Geophysicists. And so we came together, we, they helped the kids assemble these hands uh, with, with all the, the medical tape and screws and strings and everything to make these hands functional. Yeah, it was an incredible experience because the events took about four hours each, but by the end of it, the kids felt very empowered. They felt like agents of change and they had learned something. To bring innovate, uh, kind of the, the learning aspect of innovate into that, it wasn't just about building the hands. We had asked the kids to discover ways of making these better and having greater utility for the people that were going to receive them. Because what happens is uh, experts, right? We, we are working on a problem and we tend to get myopic, you know, focus on this, this one problem and, and that can challenge us in ways where we don't see uh, other possibilities. But when you bring in young, fresh minds, they're like, oh, what about this? What about that? Um, and so each time we've done this, uh, the kids have proposed a couple of really, uh, you know, good ideas for the engineers behind these 3D printed files for these hands and, have, have, you know, contributed to some improvements. One of the hands that we delivered, I'll just say, was uh, to a, a girl here in Calgary, or in Calgary, Alberta. A four-year-old girl was born without a hand, and um, it was prohibitive uh, cost-wise and insurance-wise to get a full-functioning prosthetic hand. So we got to print one for her at the first event and see what she could do with it. Uh, but then we gave it to her and let her go away for a couple days. And then we started to imagine, say, okay, what are all the things she's, you know, this girl, her, her name is Clara. What are, what are all the things she's going to be able to do now? We had all kinds of guesses, like ride a bike, throw a ball, catch a ball. We called her and talked to her mom about what was the greatest thing that Clara said she could now do. It was, she said, holding a book by myself for the first time. Because now mommy doesn't have to hold the book for me. I can hold it and turn the pages all by myself. And so, you know... Uh, that was super empowering. So James, you recently started the Innovate <clears throat> Elementary program. How did this come to be? And what kind of projects are you working on? Uh, well, I, I kind of came at Innovate 
um, in developing the elementary end of the program uh, from a social justice perspective. So my previous school, um, St. Richard Elementary, which is here in Edmonton, in 2012 challenged my students because um, we, we, we had some money trickle down to us um, for social justice initiatives, and I sort of challenged them, okay, so what, how could we use this to, to help um, improve our community or help strengthen our community? Um, and uh, what ended up happening is we teamed up with a local restaurateur named Brenda Durr of Bee's Diner and uh, established uh, a bagged lunch program. So essentially what happened was um, students decided that they wanted to help to feed uh, feed the hungry. Um, so we looked at connecting with Brenda as she was already involved with uh, programs like that. She would close her restaurant down on Tuesdays and invite all of the um, homeless people from around the White Avenue area to come in for a hot drink, a uh, free hot meal, and just to kind of relax under under a roof for a bit. She'd been trying to get into schools, but was having a bit of a time. So then we we were sort of that, that uh, catalyst, or the kids were the ones who went and figured out, okay, how do we get Brenda into schools? So from there, they developed this uh, bag lunch program. And it's now a registered charity called the Bees Supporting Youth Foundation, and we're feeding... Um, close to 350 students each Tuesday um, throughout the whole school year. Um, connecting that to Innovate, after that program was established, I kind of started looking at this idea of like, okay, so um, how, how do we do more? Aaron had provided a bit of support, but also the, the energy, what's the word I'm looking for? Inspiration um, to get solar panels on the roof of my school. Um, so I, I worked to get that done, and that was about a two-year process. But and then after that, I mean, there's a bunch of solar panels up on the roof. So we we were sponsored by one of the local companies in Edmonton, Great Canadian Solar, and we got uh, worked with Nmax as well, who gave us some of their components um, that were left over from a leasing program. So we got this wonderful system up on our roof. Um, supported by industry uh, and you know but what do we do with that um, from there I looked at getting kids involved so how do they learn from this through the grade 5 science program um, there's two units on electricity and both of those um, I've been teaching through the lens of solar energy for the last uh, six years or so and so we created a green energy fair at the school where the students in grade five became experts in specific areas of solar technology. Uh, and they set up sort of like a science fair kind of a format within the gym for a day. And at that same day, um, we invited our partners. So we had partners with Nate, the Alternative Energy Department, um, CISA, which is the Solar Energy Society of Alberta, and Great Canadian Solar, who was one of our uh, business partners as well. Um, so they came out and, and the grade five kids who were experts at their level with this technology were working alongside professionals within the solar community. The grade five kids um, were teaching their peers alongside these experts from industry. Um, so again, we're, we're just looking at empowering kids to get out in the community and, and to educate others about um, alternative energy technologies. Um, something else that we've been doing too is um, looking at energy audits. So we have an organization called Destination Conservation who are coming out to teach the grade five students how to do energy audits within the school. And they're gonna take that knowledge that they get from that event and they're going to apply it to the school. So they'll be doing light audits so just of the bank lights in each of the classrooms to figure out, okay, so how much greenhouse gases are we producing? And 
um, how many kilowatt hours are we using just with our lights. So this is how much we're using. Now how do we, uh, you know, influence others positively within the school, teachers, staff members, uh, students to kind of reduce that. After the process of, of doing the energy audit, there's a period where kids will go into the school and, and try and educate others through posters and talks about how you can reduce your energy use within the classroom. Um, and then a, maybe two months later, we look at, okay, so how much have we reduced? And then that gets graphed and then shared with the school. So here's what this translates to. Here's how much energy we've saved. Um, and then with what's left of that that we're still using, um, kids are able to calculate so how many trees could we plant to offset that? Essentially, what we're looking at is, again, engaging kids, empowering kids to take their learning, make it meaningful, go out into the community, um, and become, become a voice to be heard. The point of all of uh, part of this, right, of these active citizenship pieces is that the students are developed sets of skills, knowledge, and attitudes that become transferable to life outside of school. They learn a lot, but then they take that and they impact the greater community around them, much like we did with recycling. And to add to that, one of the things that teachers have been told for the last decade or so is that we're, we're supposed to be educating kids for jobs that don't exist yet. Um, so we're supposed to be trying to, to predict the future to, to teach kids skills, knowledge, and understanding that they need now for jobs that don't exist. And that's kind of a tall order, but if talking to kids and getting them to be leaders in, in climate change mitigation, that seems like something that is very possible. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, climate change is going to be, it, it's currently a big issue. It's going to be a bigger issue for kids who are 10 years old now. So to instill a sense of environmental empathy in kids um, where, where it becomes second nature for them to, in their actions, their day-to-day -day actions, to, to, to think about the environment, their impact on the environment, that both Aaron and I feel strongly are, are, is going to be a great uh, benefit to them as they're going out into the future unknown work world. So in terms of transferable skills, you're taking on really big projects with these kids. Do you teach them about failure? This is, in essence, the program is, it's all hands-on project-based learning. And it supports student learning in real-world contexts. And in that is this underlying entrepreneurial spirit uh, where you take risks. Um, we can't go out in the community knowing 100% of what we're going to be able to achieve. And it's one place that you don't aren't just allowed to fail, but you're allowed to learn from that failure. You're, right? you're actually, in, in a lot of ways, supported to fail. Yeah. We encourage that because that's, that's where you really learn, right? That's where you get to the point where it's like, okay, I've got to figure this out. And that's what makes people resilient. Now, the purpose of making people resilient, right, is for them to get used to failure, right? And so... The point of the failure is to help kids become comfortable with the uncomfortableness of the uncertain. There's a lot of opportunities in that, right? To be champions of change, to be the heroes who come forward with, you know, ways of helping us sustain our quality of life yet without impacting the environment as badly as we are. So Aaron, in 2015, Queen Elizabeth High School won the Greenest School in Canada Award, primarily due to the Innovate program. What did this award mean to you and your students? What it did is it recognized that being the Greenest School wasn't about the infrastructure. It wasn't that we had, you know, added insulation to the walls or changed out the windows to make them more efficient or anything like that. It was all student-led initiatives. 
part of that award or recognition had a lot to do with James because James and I were the only two educators who could feed off of each other and learn from each other. So, you know, his students actually taught us um, how to do the lunch program and how to make it systematic and work with Bees Supporting Youth Foundation and then to scale it up. Um, and, and this is one of the one of the points I want to make is that we scale everything up and up and up and up in order to see, again, what's possible or show the kids what's possible. So one of the things James taught us was like, hey, we can grow lettuce um, organically in our classroom and add that to the sandwiches. So now the students are developing skills in horticulture and local food development or local food. Um, local food production. Production. Right? Yeah. And yeah. thank you. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, actually putting it to use, like seeing how this benefits people and knowing that that what's in that lettuce, right? There's no pesticides, there's no chemicals, there's no myth or, you know, imagination as to where it came from and what's in it. We, we know because we grew it. Yeah. And not only like environmentally wise, it must build like an amazing sense of community. Right. A very yeah. community spirited initiative. In our classroom, we, we started jungle-fying it literally. Like we got earth boxes, aquaponics. We we're just growing everything we possibly could. To the point where, uh, and I had to have grow lights, UV grow lights, right? So to the point where we didn't even have lights on in the classroom, like the regular lights. We just used the UV grow lights. And one of the coolest things we noticed is that the kids, uh, when, I, when I did have a classroom, kids in my fourth block were more alert than in other classes. What do you think it is? What is actually going on here, right? So I put the kids to the task and, and they got going. They created a study called Boring Classes or High CO2 Levels. And so... We thought, well, you know, plants absorb CO2. We breathe out CO2. We have the symbiotic relationship with plants, right? So we breathe out their, the gas that they ingest and they produce, they use that and produce oxygen, which we ingest, right? And we need oxygen to stay alert. So maybe it's all these plants in the classroom keeping us alert. So we went out and bought some carbon dioxide meters and we did some controlled studies where we put them in classes with 30 plus students. Um, again, it's winter months, so the windows are closed, the doors are closed, so air is kind of more trapped in there. But kids are sitting there all day breathing out CO2. <laughs> and um, we, we measured at the level of the uh, desk where the kids are sitting. We started to wonder, maybe the ventilation can't clear out the carbon dioxide quick enough where the kids are actually sitting, right? So maybe that's contributing them being more sleepy in block four. It's got to be more than just boring teachers and subject matter, right? So... Um, yeah, we looked at classes with plants like mine and classes without plants. And we found from the beginning of the day to the end in the classes without plants, they always reached over 800 parts per million of CO2. Our physiological response to that is to go to sleep, right? The world right now is at 400 and, and some parts per million. And so we use this as a way of studying climate change indoors. And we figured, well, we just keep producing carbon. The world will just go to sleep, I guess. Okay, so what do we do about it? So they did more research and discovered that you can get CO2 filtering plants, like spider plants that do a good job of that with, um, in rooms, and decided, okay, we want to buy spider plants for each of the classrooms. And then the question came up, where do we get the money? So from there, we turned to our chemistry unit in science, and, and the students um, actually um, made and marketed uh, earth-friendly um, all-purpose cleaners. So they looked at the just a basic chemical level, what happens to solids like borax when you put them into warm water and you add a little bit of, you know, Castile soap and then a small amount of uh, mint oil. So what, what happens, what kind of a reaction happens? And so there's a whole bringing curriculum from chemistry behind it. But then the entrepreneurship side came in where students were then, you know, 
we have to market this. Um, where's our Where's our capital going to come just for to go out and buy initial materials that we need? So in language arts, they wrote um, letters to petition our principal to front some money f- for this project. And so they had to speak about, so here's the study that we did with CO2. Here are the results. This is how it's affecting our learning. Um, this is what we want to do about it. We need some capital to go out and get the materials that we need so that we can market and sell these cleaners. And then we sold cleaners uh, at school events, and then we were invited to sell them out at a community league event in Millwoods um, and ended up making more than enough money to go and buy plants for each of the classrooms to help reduce a small amount of the CO2 in the rooms. Uh, and, and again, there we, we're, we're taking this idea that we are, we're getting from, from Aaron's high school end of things, we're applying it to elementary and getting kids to be active participants in improving their community, in this case, the school community. But then they're also taking that knowledge home with them to their parents and saying, hey, this is what we learned. Here's what we know that plants can do. And again, on a larger scale, that applies to the idea of climate change. So, you know, obviously we need more plants if our our carbon dioxide levels are going up. What does that mean? What does that mean in terms of deforestation? What does that mean in terms of what we can do about that? So it's... Climate change can be, you know, depressing kind of a concept. And what we're trying to do is come at it from a positive angle, not like doom and gloom kind of we're all doomed and we're all going to fall asleep and die on a deserted planet void of any plants and life. we're, We're looking at empowering kids to have a positive impact on that to help mitigate climate change so that you don't feel overwhelmed. You you feel positive. You can go out and make a change. What plans and dreams do you have for the future of the Innovate program? In my mind, a spectacular thing that, that I could think of as an achievement within the next five years would be to get a series of CCANs set up on, on a school that are net zero, so they're solar powered. Um, we're using some sort of a geothermal kind of a system for heating to get that as a center for kids to come and learn about aquaponics. So we're growing food and then to have the lunch program operating out of that. So essentially we've got this building that's powering itself. Kids are, are, are growing food within it and they're making lunches to provide to to kids within the community. And I mean, continue, like the idea that behind that is to increase the capacity for students to learn. So this becomes right, a learning. That's the big thing. A learning lab, right? Like where we concentrate all of these things that are happening around the world and we show this, like this is to demonstrate to our students, you know, and our and our general public about uh, what's happening in the world. Because a lot of people still don't, you know, know about solar technology, even though, you know, it's everywhere around the world. There's a lot of advantages that we have here. The only constant in the world is change. We need to embrace change. And we need to understand the opportunities that lie within change. We, we need to take climate change seriously, whether it's for us or for our children, right? We need to develop a stronger sense of intergenerational responsibility. It's just a matter of educating people and getting everyone to kind of understand more about the technology Uh, And and that starts with kids, younger generations. If we can instill that within them um, at a younger age, then they're going to carry that with them. If you want to hear even more stories like that, 
check out our website at terrainforma.ca. And while you're there, look for the survey tab in the menu. We would love to get to know our listeners and what you enjoy about the show. Before we go, here's this week's edition of What's Happening. This week, the University of Alberta is hosting another eventful International Week. The week will be packed full of events and speakers all centered around this year's topic, how the arts can contribute to social and environmental justice. Events are free and open to the public. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at terrainforma. Visit us at terrainforma.ca and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Jason Wong, Amanda Rooney, and Ashley Coaches. I've been your host, Charlotte Thomason, and I'll catch you next week.